chapter uh, chapter one verse two, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Uh, one seven, the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth. One eighteen, you were not ransomed with corruptible things as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Two nine, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people that you should show forth the praises of Him who hath called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Chapter 3 talks about how a woman can win her husband to the Lord without words. Verse 8, how a man should live with his wife in all godliness. 3. 15, be ready always to give an answer to everyone that asks you the reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. 5 verse 7, casting all your care upon Him for He careth for you. 5 8, be sober, be vigilant because your adversary the devil as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. That these are the words of God. These are the powerful, holy scriptures. This is what keeps us. This is what motivates us. This is what moves us. These things are written, the Bible says, so that you might believe. And as believers, we might be motivated by the word. Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew 22, you do err not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. What are the scriptures? Let's be reminded. The Bible says that they were They're written by holy men of God who are carried along by the Holy Spirit. Who were these holy men of God? Well, we could go through many of them of the whole of the Bible, but let me say something about the New Testament epistle writers, beginning at Romans, which is the Apostle Paul, who wrote 13 epistles. What does Jesus say about him? He is a chosen vessel unto me. Who's the next epistles written by? Well, Hebrews, we don't know who the authorship of Hebrews is, but the next one would be James, which we preached on last time. He is the Lord's brother, his half-brother. He is an author of the book of Hebrews. Now we're in the book of Peter. Peter is a premier apostle. He's called a pillar of the church, along with others, and the other one being John, who wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John in the book of Revelation, and Jude 2 was written by one of the Lord's brothers. So these are special vessels that God used in the penning of the words of God, so that we would have the mind of God and know the truth of God. The book of 1st Peter. When I played football in uh, high school, my coach was very serious about uh, our team. We would arrive on campus about two weeks before uh, before the season started, even before school started, I should say. And uh, he, he had tried to impress this upon all of us football athletes by saying, remember, when you are in campus, it's as if you have a big F on your head and it stands for football. You're a football player and Everybody on this campus is going to know it by the way you are and the way you act. Well, that made us feel real good about ourselves, you know. But let's think about what God says is our identity. What are we supposed to look like? Before we get into that, let's be, if we can get the map up here. Do we have a map, uh, Nikki, possibly? I just want you to know that Peter was writing to the elect exiles of the dispersion from these various uh, areas here, Bithynia... Galatia, Pontius, in this general area is where 
the epistle was directed to the twelve tribes that were scattered abroad in the dispersion. These were called the Diaspora Jews. Okay? So we have Israel, the nation is over here, and then we have all these other territories. But I just want you to get an idea. We know that Peter, at least, had been in Antioch, which would have been somewhere in this area. Um, See, obviously must have made his way into this area in his apostolic travels, and now he's writing to them, to the twelve tribes. So the audience is, you could say, primarily of Jewish extraction. But there were Gentiles mingled in with them as well, but I think his primary audience in this epistle is the Jewish people in those who were converted. And this is how he calls them. This is what I want you to think about. I want you to think about this for yourself. Not the F for football, not the whatever your particular other identities might be, what you do for a job, what your social status might be, where you're from, etc., etc., how tall you are, or whatever. But rather, this is how... Peter addresses his audience. This is how we are addressed. We're addressed as the elect. We're addressed as the ransomed. We're addressed as born agains. Obedient children, 113. Living stones, 25. Chosen generation, royal priesthood, holy nation. A people of God's special treasure, 2.9. We're foreigners and exiles, 2.11. We're sheep, we're the beloved, and we're even Christians. That word Christian, by the way, which is a very popular word that we use, is only found once in the epistles. It's found in the book of Acts, chapter 11, and also in chapter 26, I believe, when Agrippa says, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. In Acts 11, it says that they were called Christians first, At Antioch, those are the two other places, and this is the third place, and the only place in all the epistles where the word is Christian is referenced. Now, the word Christian means a Christ-like one. In what better ways could God be addressing us, His people, than to call us His elect, the ransomed, the born-again, the obedient children, the living stones, and so on and so forth. Also, among these elect, ransomed, born-again people, there are varieties of ministries and responsibilities that they have. Chapter 2.13, they're citizens, and they're told to submit to ordinances and to honor the king. Servants are told to be subject to your masters. Wives, to win their husbands over. Husbands, how to conduct themselves towards their wives. Elders, how they're to lead the flock. Flock, not taking the oversight in some sort of a dictatorial way, but by way of example. The younger ones are to submit themselves to the older ones. Now, Peter uses a word that was used by Jesus when, he, when Nicodemus came to him by night. And what was that word, Caleb? When Nicodemus came to Jesus by night and he said, what, you must be what? That's right, born again, you got it. You must be born again. Peter uses that term born again three times here in this epistle. As a matter of fact, I think the youth group, if I'm not mistaken, was studying a memory verse this week. Do we have any volunteers among them that might quote a a verse that has the word born again in it? Give me one of your scholars, Seth. Huh? Didn't you memorize one? 
Nice and loud, they can't hear you in the back. Blessed. Amen. He has caused us to be born again. For what purpose? For an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that fades not away, reserved in heaven for you. Isn't that good news? Born again people have the prospect and hope and confidence of going to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that fades not away, reserved in heaven for you. We've got a reservation there. You know, when the children of Israel came out of Egypt, what were they looking for? They were looking for the promised land, the land that flowed with milk and honey. God had revived them, had birthed them, so to speak, given them new life in their heading to the promised land. But we, God's children, have been given life, the new birth, and now what are we looking for? We're looking for glory. Our hope is not in this world, but in the one to come. Paul says, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. Notice the expression, he has caused us to be born again. If you think you've been born again because of anything you've done, you're mistaken. The Bible says salvation is of the Lord. All glory be to Him. You are what you are by the grace of God. You're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And to God be the glory, the great things He has done. He has caused you to be born again. How is it that He needed to cause us? Because we were dead in trespasses and sins. We had no spiritual true desires for the Lord. It had to be a miracle of God to create a desire within us. Even the repentance that we had, it was because God gave us repentance unto life. And there are numerous passages that tell us that. It's not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. That mercy was shown to us and caused, created a new life in us to be born again. In chapter 1, also verse 23, it says, Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which lives and abides forever. So the cause of our new birth is from the Lord. He caused us to be born again. Now the means that God used to make us born again is found in verse 23. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of an incorruptible by the word of God. Being saved is not just some kind of a sensation that we may have. It's not a, a religious mode that we may enter into. It's a miracle that's created by God in the utilization of the word of God is the means that he uses to bring about the new birth. And then in the second chapter, verse two, he says, as newborn, or we could say as born again people, babes desire the sincere milk of the word or the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. That's the effects of the new birth. The new birth is caused by God. The means that he uses is the word of God. And the result or the effects are to desire the sincere milk of the Word, that pure milk of the Word, and that is the Holy Scriptures. And in this epistle, we have now to these children of God all kinds of exhortations. Gird up the loins of your mind. Uh, Be holy, for I am holy. Pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. 
Love the brethren. Lay aside malice and guile and all those things. Offer up spiritual sacrifices to God. Show forth His praises, 2.9. Abstain from fleshly lust, 2.11. Submit to authorities, 2.13. Honor all men, 2.15. Be subject to your masters, 2.18. Take Suffering patiently, 2.20 and 21. Live unto righteousness, 2.24. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, dwell with them wisely. Be of one mind, etc. These are the exhortations that are given to the children of God. This is why the epistle like Peter's is called a general epistle. Because there's nothing real specific in the epistle that Peter is trying to convey, but it's rather general in its reflections. It's written to bewildered Christians who are somewhat puzzled by the trials and the sufferings that they are undergoing. Sufferings is a big word utilized in Peter. Sufferings. Sufferings of Christ are mentioned in every chapter. Let me refer to them quickly. One eleven. The prophets wrote with the Spirit within them They signified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Isaiah, Jeremiah, etc. All the Old Testament prophets had the Spirit of God in them, inspiring them to write about the sufferings of Christ. Remember when Jesus was on the road to Emmaus with the two and uh, they didn't know who He was and they were puzzled by the fact that Jesus had died. They thought He had vanished and and that the story had all ended. Finally, Jesus has to open the Word and tell them, O fools, in slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into His glory? Yes, the sufferings of Christ, chapter 1, verse 11. 2.21, Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow His steps. Christ suffered for us. Chapter 2. Chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that He might bring us to God. Christ's sufferings. Again, chapter 4, which we'll get into in a moment. Verse 1. Christ has suffered for us in the flesh. In chapter 5, Peter describes himself as having been a witness or an eyewitness of the sufferings of Christ. Five chapters Five clear passages indicating the sufferings of Christ. Years had gone by. Peter is writing in the early 60s or thereabouts. 65, 63, somewhere in that range. And he's still recalling the sufferings as a witness. Peter stood at the crucifixion. He witnessed Jesus' sufferings. He saw the abuse that he took. He's the one that went in to as close as he could to the high priest's special interrogation location when Jesus was being interrogated. He went as far as he could right in the next room. He heard and saw a lot of different things that went on. Matter of fact, he denied the Lord three times. Kind of surprising, isn't it, that he would be one of the ones that would be a epistle writer in the New Testament? Interesting how God can use someone who's broken, someone who fails, and that might be you and I, how He can take you back, lift you up, and even give you wings to high soarer than you did before. That's the kind of God that we have. We know a lot about Peter, maybe more than any other apostle. 
at least of the twelve. He's so frequently referenced in the gospel accounts. But not just that. I want you to notice with me the correspondences between some of the things in Peter's life as recorded in the gospels that seem to be reflected upon in the epistle. For instance, Jesus says to Peter, Satan has desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. Satan has desired to have you, but I have prayed for you. Peter writes, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walks about seeking them whom he may devour. Peter himself experienced that devouring power of the devil. So therefore, he's warning fellow believers, be vigilant, be on the outlook for him. Be prepared, resist him. How about when Jesus asks the question, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Who speaks up? The one who usually does, Peter. Peter ends up saying, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. What does the Lord say to that? Peter, flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. God caused the new birth in Peter to be able to confess that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. And the Lord says to Peter, Thou art the rock, and upon this rock I will build my church. Peter refers to Jesus in the epistle as the foundation stone upon which we are all built upon. Peter's not the rock. He's a small rock built upon the rock of ages. Jesus Christ. He says in 2.5, You also as living stones are built up a spiritual house. Because in that context in Matthew 16, Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. How can a building built by the Lord and built with living stones brought together as one people forming the new temple? Now this is interesting too because as we said here, as we look at the, uh, well we don't have the map up there right now, but in these areas here up on the map with you saw, he's writing to the Jews, right? Now the Jews' temple would have been right down here in Jerusalem and yet he's telling them, you are living stones built up to be a spiritual house. So in these different areas, Pontus and uh, Bithynia, Galatia and so on, where these particular Jews were, along with some Gentiles, they each were forming a house, a spiritual house. Now that, that's almost insulting to the temple. But what the New Testament writers are writing is basically now we are the temple of the living God. That old temple has lost its efficacy. It has yielded. It has passed the baton over to now the church and we compose the people of God. Another correspondence I want to draw to your attention. Peter was one of the three that was on the mount when Jesus was transfigured before the eyes of him and two other apostles. They saw it before their very eyes. He turned immediately into a glistening, white, shining light. And what happened? 
Well, I won't get into the details. The conversation was had about Jesus deceased. But it says that the cloud, after the apostles fell asleep, they woke up and the Lord wanted to show to them who the real glorious person was to be adored. And that was Jesus. Because He removes Elijah and Moses and Christ alone is there. And then the glory cloud, as it were, seems to move from the Lord to them as if saying, now you're the light of the world. You've seen me transfigured. Now you are my transfigurations as well. And the Bible says there in math. Uh, can we get that verse up there, by the way? Luke 9.34. I want you to see this verse. I don't think I'm stretching this either. If we can get that up there. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. What cloud is that? The Shekinah cloud that was on Christ is now being put on them. And Peter says in his epistle, the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Wow. What a transference. The one who is the true Shekinah glory is now saying to us, you are now having that Shekinah glory upon you. You're, the light is shining upon you now. And don't think it's strange concerning that fiery trial which is to try you. You have the Spirit of glory and of God that rests upon you. Another correspondence, if we could get Mark 10.39 up there. Zebedee's uh, sons, James and John, come to Jesus and they say, Lord, can we sit at your right hand in the kingdom? Or in heaven, when we, when we arrive there, will you allow that? And what does the Lord say to them? I'll tell you what He says to them. <laughs> he says, it's not my responsibility, my, not my duty to tell you where you're going to sit in the kingdom. But, I'm going to tell you this. I have a baptism to be baptized with. And you shall be baptized as well as I am. And in 1 Peter 3.21, oh, there we go. But to, the, to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Can we get the next verse up, possibly, Nick? We could just turn to the Bible, couldn't we? 10.41 Well, that's when the Lord Jesus says, You shall be baptized. And when they, the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. It goes on to say, it's, it's the verses following that, where he says, I have a baptism to baptize with, and so too you Will be You can't drink of the cup that I'm going to drink, but you will be baptized like I'm baptized. That's quite an interesting verse. Have you ever thought of that? Having that baptism? Baptism. That's what we were reading about. Do you realize there are about seven or eight different kinds of baptisms in the New Testament? Can somebody name another one other than water baptism? What's that? Spirit baptism. What's that? Fire. Baptism of fire. Suffering. Baptism of suffering. That's what we're looking at right now. Anyone else? 
Let me give them to you. We have two kinds of water baptism. Christian baptism. Then we have John's baptism. We have spirit baptism. By one spirit, you're all baptized into one body. So whether you were ever water baptized or not, the moment you got saved, you were baptized by the Spirit into the one body of Christ. Water baptism doesn't do that for you. It doesn't transfer you into the body of Christ. But the Spirit baptism does. And the water baptism then outwardly symbolizes your union with the Lord and your union in the body of Christ. We had reference to the fire, the baptism of fire. And I believe that that's referring to the baptism of hell's sufferings forever. In Matthew 25, 41, Jesus will say, Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Yes, he'll separate the wheat from the chaff, and the chaff will go into the burnings. That is a baptism. Then we have uh, Moses. They were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud. And in the sea, Jesus' own personal baptism when He went down to the Jordan and was baptized by John, in Hebrews chapter 6 could be considered a baptism. It's translated that's way, that way by some translations. But it means cleansing, ceremonial cleansings when people actually were submerged and there was a ceremonial washing of their impurities. But the one that we're going to look at this morning and the remaining time that we have is in verse chapter in verse number 21, the like figure wherein the baptism does also now save us. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience. And what is this baptism? Well, of course, the majority of, of all scholars believe that it's water baptism, and I'm not going to challenge that, but I want to say there's something else included in the baptism that is beyond just simply being dunked into water. And that's chapter 4, verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Jesus says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and you too will be baptized as well in a baptism of suffering like I am suffering. And will suffer. And he's referring, of course, to the cross. Although you could say that Jesus' life was a life of suffering. He was a, a stranger to his brethren. He was alienated from, from the household of Israel. He wasn't respected. He came unto his own. His own received him not. They said, away with this man. We'll not have him to reign over us. They tried to push him over the brow of the hill. They wanted to stone him. They wanted to kill him. They despised him. They called him all, all sorts of names. He says, if they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more shall they call them of his household? This is the kind of abuse Jesus took. That's what Isaiah meant when he says, He is despised, rejected of men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. This is the kind of reception Jesus had in the world. But the New Testament is informing us, Peter is writing to his constituents, to his audience, telling them, you too are going to go through sufferings as well. He says, don't think it's strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. Don't think it's strange. 1 Peter 2.21 says, Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow His steps. 
Now granted, no one here is looking to suffer. I, I'm not. I'm not raising my hand to be on a line to get to be, to be suffering. But it is appointed unto us that we do have trials, that we will go through some degree of persecution. Being an American person and a Christian in America, the likelihood, though it's increasing, is still it's a pretty safe territory for the most part for us to be in. So we really don't know what those in other countries in the past under other lordships in the, in the atmosphere like Caesar is Lord versus Jesus is Lord. So suffering is something that we uh, have on our schedule. We suffer as Christians. We suffer in our fallen humanity. And we even suffer for our sins. And Peter warns them, be sure that you're not being persecuted because of your disorderliness. It's a shameful thing when a Christian falls into the sins of the world. What, what a double jeopardy that is, if you will. What a, what a reproach that is on those who are called the elect, the born again, the ransomed, the, the royal priest, the holy priest, for them to fall into such categories. Peter says, hopefully not, that won't be the case. The title of this sermon, can I get that up? The title of the sermon is more than First Peter. Uh, it's... We, we had a crazy week, all of us, between the music people and, and uh, the, those running the soundboard and myself, too. So we're really not in tune so much as we should be or hope we usually are. But the title of this sermon was, How Do We Stop Sinning? How Do We Stop Sinning? Look at 4 verse 1 again. Therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. Arm yourselves in the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Man, that's a strong word. I suppose that would be a verse that the, the uh, holiness perfectionist people would get. The old Methodist, by the way, at one time embraced that idea that you could be fully sanctified and be classified as sinless. And if I read that verse and I isolated it from many other places in the Bible, I could conclude that Yes, I can, I can get to a certain level where I won't sin anymore because it says right here, I will cease from sin. George Whitfield, who was an early Methodist himself, um, was informed by a fellow Methodist brother in Christ that uh, he knew of somebody that had reached a state of perfection. And he was like, wow, I want to meet that guy. So George Whitfield was brought in by John Wesley into the home of this individual and uh, he, he said, that Mr. Whitfield said, it's an honor to meet you, to have met somebody that has uh, uh, grown in the Lord and has been sanctified to this degree. And uh, he, he's kind of walking back and forth and he reaches uh, with a cup into a cold bucket of water. And he says, this is amazing. And he just flipped the water right into his face. And immediately he got mad and angry at him and said, see what I'm saying? You're not sinless. You can't ever cease from fully not sinning. It's only by the miracle of God that we have been given the fruit of Christ's work on the cross as being issued forgiveness of sins. We stand before God sinless before Him 
We're still sinful here in this world. When conversion occurs, we are sinless before God and we sin less before men. Because that's the power of the gospel operating in us. Remember, we are saved from the penalty of sin that's in the past tense. We are being saved from the power of sin that's the present tense. And we shall be saved from the presence of sin that's in the future. So the past, I am saved. The present, I am being saved. And in the future, I shall be saved when I am with the Lord. Saved to sin no more, the songwriter says, and there is a fountain filled with blood. Saved to sin no more. That will be the ultimate future. But in this lifetime, is there a desire for us to want to cease from sin? Christ hath made us free. It tells us in Galatians 5.1. Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. And the servant abideth not forever, but the son abideth forever. But if the son shall set you free, you shall be free indeed. It's a wonderful thing to be freed from the power of sin in one's life. If you're not saved, sin has dominion over you. And I can tell you, the Bible says, it's deceitful. Sin is deceptive. You don't think about wages for those sins. You only think of the temporary pleasures of them for the moment. But there are consequences coming in the future and possibly even in the present. Suffering as Christians. It's inevitable. In 1 verse 6 he says, In this you rejoice, so now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Grieved by various trials. Suffering. There's something I want to read to you that I came across this week that I thought has a lot of application to what we're talking about. This is a story about Corrie Ten Boom. You probably have heard of her. Uh, she was uh, in the Holocaust and one of the survivors. Um, and as a result of this, she became a very popular Christian spokesperson around the world. And she writes this, Several years ago, I was in Africa. This is probably back in the 80s here, 70s or 80s. Uh, in a little country where an enemy had taken over the government in Africa. There was a great oppression against the Christians by the new government. The first night I was there, some of the native Christians were commanded to come to the police station to be registered. When they arrived, they were arrested, and during the night, they were secretly executed. The next day, the same thing happened with other Christians. The third day, it was the same. By that time, the entire district realized that Christians were being systematically murdered. It was the intent of the new government to eradicate them all. Men, women, and children, such as Hitler tried to eradicate all the Jews. I was to speak that night in a little church, and the people came, but I could not see fear or tension written on every face. All during the service, they looked at each other, their eyes asking the same questions. Will this one I am sitting beside be the next one to be killed? And will I be the next one? 
I looked out on the congregation of black and white faces. The room was hot and stuffy. Moths and other insects came through the screenless windows and swirled around the naked light bulbs hanging over the bare wooden benches upon which the natives sat. They were all looking at me, expecting, hoping that I could bring them a word from God for this tragic hour. I opened my Bible and I read from the Phillips translation these words. And now, dear friends of mine, I beg you not to be unduly alarmed at the fiery ordeals which come to test your faith as though these were abnormal experiences. You should be glad because it means you are to share Christ's sufferings. One day when He shows Himself in full splendor to men, you will be filled with the most tremendous joy. If you are reproached for being Christ's followers, that is a great privilege. For you can be sure that God's Spirit of glory is resting upon you. 1 Peter 4, verse 12 to 14. I closed the book, she says, and began to talk simply as an aunt would talk to her nieces and nephews. When I was a little girl, I said, I went to my father and I said, Daddy, I'm afraid that I will never be strong enough to be a martyr for Jesus Christ. Tell me, father said, when you take a trip on your train from Harlem to Amsterdam, when do I give you the money for the ticket? Three weeks before? No, Daddy, you give me the money for the ticket just before we get on the train. That is right, Daddy said, and so it is with God's strength. Our wise Father in Heaven knows when you are going to need things too. Today, you do not need the strength to be a martyr, but as soon as you are called upon for the honor of facing death for Jesus, He will supply the strength you need just in time. I looked out at my African friends. Many of them had already lost loved ones to the firing squad and to the headsman's axe. I knew that others would surely die that week. They were listening intently. I took great comfort in my father's advice. I said, later I had to suffer for Jesus in a concentration camp. He indeed gave me all the courage and power I needed. My African friends were nodding seriously. They too believed God would supply all their needs, even the power to face death. Tell me more. One grizzled old black man said, it was as though they were storing up all the truth they could so they could draw on it the day of trial. I told them of an incident, and she goes on to talk about her time in the concentration camps. But then she says, I didn't know how many were killed that week, but someone told me that more than half of those that attended that service met a martyr's death and thus received a martyr's crown. But I know that God's Spirit of glory had been resting upon them. If you and I are called upon to suffer like that, we want to run the other way, right? That's the natural man. Even Jesus Himself in the Garden of Gethsemane says, Father, take away this cup from me. And of course, that cup was far fuller than what we would ever taste in just a martyr's death. But death is not something that we desire. We don't want to die. We don't want to be killed. But if we are called upon 
The Bible says that He giveth more grace. We can count on Him for that. You and I, we feel like chickens, right? We don't want to be martyred. We're glad we're in America. We're glad we're safe. But who knows what we might be called upon someday. Maybe not a martyr's death, but maybe some other kind of suffering for Jesus Christ's sake. And Peter says this, If ye are reproached for Christ's sake, happy are ye. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank You for the witness of our Lord Jesus, His testimony of being a sufferer for the kingdom of heaven's sake. Lord, we ask that You would motivate our hearts to be more like our Lord Jesus. And that we too, as He was baptized with the baptism of suffering, Lord, too, we may be called upon as well to be baptized in a baptism of suffering. Help us, O Lord, to be able to take that cup, Lord, as from Your hand with confidence, Lord, that You are over all things for the church's sake and for the glory of Your name. Bless Your Word. And for anyone here, Lord, it is not born again. We pray, O God, that it would please You to cause them to consider their ways, to look to the cross and understand the precious blood that Jesus shed for the ransoming of their souls that they might come to know Him as the Lord and Savior of their life. We ask these things, Father, giving you praise and worship in Jesus' precious and worthy name. Amen.